0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the seemingly disparate sections of scripture to discern the flow of the text and the flow of thought and the theme contained within the text. The book of Leviticus is split into four major sections that describe various methods of worship of Hashem. The first of these topics was the topic of sacrifice, a ritual of giving and slaughter and blood that's very difficult for us as a modern audience to connect to. And as we discovered, we cannot accomplish sacrifice as described in Leviticus in any way. In fact, for us to attempt to carry out sacrifice in this way today would be a sin. But as we considered the topic of sacrifice, we discovered that each of the sacrifices covered an ideal that is still central to the worship of Hashem. Ideas such as the fear of Hashem in the Ola, the giving of tribute to a king in the Mincha, fellowship and peace with each other and with God in the Shlamim, humility, recognition of our own fallen nature in the Chatat, and recognition of wrongs committed in the Asham. After the topic of sacrifice, the text then turns to the topic of uncleanness. But before it gets there, the topics of sacrifice and uncleanness, they're brought together for a few chapters in the ordination ceremony, the inauguration of the tabernacle, and the deaths of Nadab and Avihu. And these topics are brought together in the context of the priesthood. In fact, all four main topics of Leviticus are highlighted in these chapters. Holiness and the anointing of the priests during the ordination and in the deaths of Nadav and Avihu. The community in the inauguration of the tabernacle as their uncleanness is dealt with for the very first time and as they're blessed by Aaron for the first time. And it's after these three chapters the interlude of the topics of uncleanness is then brought to the front fully for the next five chapters. And once again, we encounter in the topic of uncleanness a whole lot of things that don't really matter to us at this point in history. Uncleanness, just as with sacrifice, only meant anything when the tabernacle and the temple existed. Without a temple, without a tabernacle, uncleanness is a topic that is relatively meaningless for us in application. Or is it? When we examine all that these chapters and others have to say about uncleanness, we discover that there is a singular idea that connects all of the examples of uncleanness together. And that is death. And death, or the near proximity of death, is something that is not to be allowed into the presence of God. And so when the people come into contact with death, it had to be cleaned away in some way. But that is a status that has no meaning without the tabernacle, without the temple, without the physical presence of God in our midst. We have none of these things, and so uncleanness is something that's not really applicable to our walk. But uncleanness is still useful for us as it teaches us of our own nature and the nature of this world as a nature of death. And these natures are directly opposed to the nature of God. And for the most part, through this point, the book of Leviticus has not provided any real concrete actions that we can take. I mean, there's some ideals that have been revealed, but only to those who take the time to dig in and to really consider the text. But we always seek for a way to apply scripture to our lives, and there's very little of that in Leviticus. But Leviticus has provided for us a foundation of understanding ourselves in light of our God, and it has taught us the proper attitudes that we should have when we approach God, and it has taught us of the vast gulf that lies between us and God. And so for us in the age of Yeshua, Leviticus gives us an appreciation for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf to defeat death, and to remove uncleanness so that we might draw close to Hashem. It's then in chapter 16 that the four main topics of Leviticus are brought together once again, not just in one chapter, but also in one day of worship. Sacrifices are accomplished. Uncleanness is dealt with. The third topic of holiness is addressed. And the fourth topic of communal worship is highlighted. In one day, the book of Leviticus was brought to life as the lessons of all of Leviticus are applied. And in this one day, the sins of the people of Israel were dealt with and sent away into the wilderness. Just after this chapter on the Day of Atonement, the topic of the book shifts once again, this time to the topic of holiness, and for a short time, we finally find things that we can connect to, at least to a degree. And to begin with, this topic is introduced by what not? to do. The things that a person can do to defile themselves and to remove themselves from the community of a holy God. And then for the next two chapters that we covered last week, we saw for the first time in Leviticus a bunch of things that we can actually do. Things that we can relate to and practice. And this has for a very long time led people to believe that the act of doing these things will grant holiness to the person. But as we saw, these things do not grant holiness. Only Hashem can grant holiness to a person, but they are the expected way of life of someone who has been granted the status of holiness. Well, this week we enter back into the parts of Leviticus that do not really connect with us in any way. While the last Parsha covered holiness for the layman, and we're all laymen at this time in history, as well as we're all priests at this time in history, but we're not priests of the line of Levi. This parasha covers holiness in the priesthood of Israel. And just as we saw back in chapters 8 through 10, there is a linking that's taking place here between all four of the main topics of Leviticus. Previously, we saw all four topics in those chapters, holiness, sacrifice, and uncleanness throughout and communal worship at the inauguration of the tabernacle. Once again, in these two connecting chapters, we see all four touched on again holiness and defilement to begin with in chapter 21, but then uncleanness, sacrifice, and communal worship in chapter 22 alongside the topic of holiness. And as we explore these two sections with each other, we discover that in both cases these topics are all brought together in the priesthood. So let's read these chapters and then discuss further on the holy priesthood and what it may mean for us today. Leviticus 21-22-25 And Hashem said to Moshe, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one is to be defiled for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, for his mother, and for his father, and for his son, and for his daughter, and for his brother, and for his maiden sister who is near to him, who has had no husband. For her he is defiled. A leader does not defile himself among the people to profane himself. They do not make any bald place on their heads, and they do not shave the corner of their beards, and they do not make a cutting in their flesh. They are set apart to their Elohim, and do not profane the name of their Elohim. For they bring the fire offerings of Hashem, and the bread of their Elohim, and shall be set apart. They do not take a woman who is a whore, or a defiled woman, and they do not take a woman put away from her husband, for he is set apart to his Elohim. And you shall set him apart, for he brings the bread of your Elohim, he is set apart to you. For I, Hashem, setting you apart, am set apart. And when the daughter of any priest profanes herself by whoring, she profanes her father. She is burned with fire. And the high priest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is ordained to wear the garments, does not unbind his head, nor tear his garments, nor come near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother nor go out of the set-apart place, nor profane the set-apart place for his Elohim, for the sign of dedication of the anointing oil of his Elohim is upon him. I am Hashem. And let him take a wife in her maidenhood, a widow, or one put away, or a defiled woman, or a whore, these he does not take, but a maiden of his own people he does take as a wife, and he does not profane his offspring among his people, for I am Hashem, who sets him apart. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has any defect is to draw near to bring the bread of his Elohim. For any man who has a defect is not to draw near, a man blind or one lame or disfigured or deformed, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye, or eczema, or scab, or is a eunuch. No man among the offspring of Aaron the priest who has the defect is to come near to bring the offerings made by fire to Hashem. He has a defect. He does not come near to bring the bread of his Elohim. He does eat the bread of his Elohim, both the most set apart and the set apart. Only he does not go near the veil or approach the altar, because he has a defect, lest he profanes my set apart places. For I am Hashem, who sets them apart. Thus Moshe spoke to Aaron and his sons, and to all the children of Israel. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that they separate themselves from the set-apart offerings of the children of Israel, and that they do not profane my set-apart name, and what they set apart to me, I am Hashem. Say to them, Any man of all your offspring throughout your generations who draws near to the set-apart offerings which the children of Israel set apart to Hashem, while he has uncleanness upon him, that being shall be cut off from before me, I am Hashem. Any man of the offspring of Aaron who is a leper, or has a discharge, does not eat the set-apart offerings until he is clean. And whoever touches what is rendered unclean by a being, or a man who has had an omission of semen, or a man who touches any swarming creature by which he would be made unclean, or any being by whom he would become unclean, even any of his uncleanness, the being who has touched it shall be unclean until evening, and does not eat the set-apart offerings, but shall bathe his body in water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward... Eat the set-apart offerings, because it is his food. He does not eat that which dies, or is torn by a beast, becoming unclean by it. I am Hashem. And they shall guard my charge, lest they bear sin for it, and die thereby, when they profane it. I, Hashem, set them apart. And no stranger eats of the set-apart offering. A sojourner with the priest or hired servant does not eat of the set-apart offering. But when the priest buys a being with his silver, he does eat of it. And one who is born in his house does eat his food. And when a priest's daughter is married to a stranger, she does not eat of the set-apart offerings. But when a priest's daughter is a widow, or put away, and has no child, and has returned to her father's house, as in her youth, she does eat her father's food, but no stranger eats of it. And when a man eats of the set-apart offering by mistake, then he shall give a set-apart offering to the priest, and add one-fifth to it. And let the priests not profane the set-apart offerings of the children of Israel, which they lift up to Hashem or allow them to bear the crookedness of trespass when they eat their set-apart offerings. For I am Hashem who sets them apart. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or the stranger of Israel, who brings his offering for any of his vows or for any of his voluntary offerings, which they bring to Hashem as an ascending offering, for your acceptance is a male, a perfect one from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect, you do not bring, for it is not acceptable to you. And when a man brings a sacrifice of peace offerings to Hashem to complete a vow or a voluntary offering from the cattle or the sheep, it is to be perfect, to be accepted. Let there be no defect in it. Those blind or broken or cut or having an ulcer or eczema or scab, you do not bring to Hashem nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to Hashem. As for a bull or lamb that has any limb deformed or dwarfed, you do prepare it as a voluntary offering. Before a vow offering, it is not accepted. Do not bring to Hashem what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor do it in your land and From the Son of your stranger's hand, do not bring any of these as the bread of your Elohim, for their corruption is in them, and defects are in them. they are not acceptable for you. So all the way back in chapter Four, we read of the sin sacrifice that was to be made when a person sinned by mistake. In that passage, we saw very clearly that there is a difference that is very real in those who had been anointed as priests and a layman of the people. A priest who had sinned was required to bring a bull to cover his own sin, while a layman was allowed to bring either a goat or a sheep for his sins. In this early instance, we see the higher status of the priesthood over the layman. And what was done with the blood of the sacrifice reveals a lot about the duties and the expectations of each. For the priest, the blood of the bull was sprinkled at the entrance of the tent before the veil, and then the blood was applied to the horns of the altar of incense inside the tabernacle before being poured out at the base of the altar. It was taken into the tabernacle. For the layman, though, the blood of the sacrifice was not taken into the tabernacle. The blood of this sacrifice was applied to the horns of the altar of the sacrifice in the courtyard. The differences in where the blood of these sacrifices was applied teach us further of the difference between a priest and a layman. The layman was allowed to come up to, but never to pass the altar of sacrifice. The priest, however, was allowed into the tabernacle all the way up to the altar of incense. And what is it that determined the distance that one was able to go in the tabernacle? Well, our usual response is something along the lines of, well, it was their bloodline. They were of the line of Aaron. But that's not completely accurate as we see in this chapter. If a person has a defect, even from the line of Aaron, they were not allowed to serve in the tabernacle. So what is it that determines if a person can enter into the tabernacle? It's the level of holiness that the person was granted by God. In chapter 9 we read of extra holiness being granted to the priests in the ordination ceremony. They were anointed with the holy anointing oil, granting them a measure of holiness that others were not given. And that level of holiness then had greater expectations that came along with it on how a person should act. Well, Last week we saw the level of expectation that was placed in a layman. Not just the layman, but for everyone. So, when we get here and we read of how holiness is to be lived out by the priest, we need to recognize that this is above and beyond what we just read. There is for the priest a much higher level of holiness expected of them. And when we turn to this week's passage, we see this clearly. The instructions for the priest's holiness begins with being defiled for a dead body. Now, this is so completely contrary to how we operate today. When a person dies, who is it that performs the funeral? Well, it's a priest or a pastor. It's the ones that we consider to be the closest to God and who fulfill the role of representing God to the people. These are now the ones who are present for nearly every death. Now, the thing that we have to wrestle with is, does this even matter today? Uncleanness from death is something that we all have and that none of us can possibly take care of. And as stated before, with uncleanness not even really being an issue, do we even need to take care of this? Added to this, the priests of Leviticus were to come before the presence of God in a very physical way, something that we don't do today. So, does this command even matter? Will a priest or a pastor or a community leader be defiled for the dead by coming close to them? I tend towards the answer of um, no more than they already are, and at this point in history, uncleanness of this sort does not matter as it once did. I do, however, find it interesting how our cultural views on this have changed from the ideals presented in Leviticus, not just here, but in many other areas. Now in verses 4-6 through we read that a leader is not to profane themselves. Now, we should understand that this word for leader here is not the same as the word for leader back in chapter 5, when it makes a differentiation between the leader and the priest, and how their sacrifices are to be handled. The word translated as leader in my translation here is the word Baal. It's a word that simply means Lord or Master. This this is not a governmental type of leader, but is still talking of the priests. Then we are told that they are not to defile themselves by taking several actions, making a bald spot on their heads, shaving the corner of their beards, or cutting their flesh. Last week we saw these same commands given, and in that place it was made clear that it was, quote, for the dead. Well, here we find that three of the four items that we contemplated last week are once again associated with for the dead. This time not through an explicit declaration of for the dead, but rather through the proximity of the command of the idea of mourning for the dead. Now what is it that's missing from this list that was in the previous list? Well, it's tattoos. So the question is, is the prohibition against tattoos in the context of for the dead, or is it a standalone command like so many others in chapter 19? Well, if we use this passage as a guide, then no, tattoos are not associated with death here. And so, maybe they're not in the previous chapter as well. If we read through the list in chapter 19, we find the first three listed in the phrase for the dead, with tattoos then coming after the phrase. Now, this is one of those things that there's a lot of disagreement out there over. Should a person get a tattoo? Well, it can go either way, and so I'm going to leave the distinction up to you. But I do ask you to recognize that when the things that are done for the dead are repeated in this chapter, tattoos are not among them. Then in verse 6 we read once again the one thing that we can damage that belongs to God. It is possible for a priest who serves in the presence of God and who acts contrary to these commands to defile the name of God, to take His holy name and to make it common or void. Something that we've covered before and we'll cover again, so we'll move on. Beginning in verse 7, we read that a priest is to be choosy in who he marries because a husband and wife, they become one and they're united together in a very real but often intangible way. For a priest to marry a woman who has been defiled would in turn bring defilement upon himself. And so we get a list of women who have been defiled. No whores, no defiled women, this presumably means a woman who's had sex outside of marriage, and no woman who's been put away from their husband. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time right now to dig into the the difference between divorce and being put away in the Hebrew and the ancient Near East culture. For now, simply understand that being put away was a different thing than that of a divorce. A divorced woman is one that has a document that signifies that she has been legally separated from her husband. A woman who has been put away is one that has been simply driven out of her husband's house, but is still legally married. A woman who has been put away, she's not legally divorced, and so she cannot legally remarry. Well, We'll get deeper into this topic in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the question comes, was a priest allowed to marry a divorced woman? I really don't know if this distinction between being put away and divorced applies in this case, as a divorcee is not mentioned specifically. Again, I'm not sure it even matters today, so we're not going to get hung up on it. And then we read of the daughter of the priest, if she defiles herself through whoring, a word in the Hebrew that can also mean just simply committing fornication. She is to be put to death. Presumably, this command is for any daughter of a priest who chooses to sleep with another man outside of the covenant of marriage. Again, this kind of defilement reflects on the priest and it brings not only shame to her family, but shame before God. Now, we've encountered this before and it's difficult for our Western guilt and innocence ears to hear this, but there appears to be a measure of honor killing in this command. Notice, though, that it is the daughter who defiles herself that is to be put to death, not a daughter who is defiled by another. Too often in modern honor-shame cultures, and even ancient, the victims of rape are killed because of the shame that their family suffers, and so the daughter or the sister is killed to remove their shame. This is not the case here. This only applied if the daughter engaged in the act willfully, and this only applied to the family of a priest the ones who are granted the holiness of God. As we see in chapter 22, the unmarried daughter of a priest is part of his household, and so she eats of the holy things. Holy and defiled, they cannot coexist, and so in an honor-shame culture, the daughter had to be expunged. We have a hard time accepting that, but we have to remember, the Bible wasn't written to our sensibilities, and it wasn't written into our culture. And so, through this little aside, we find that both chapter 19 and 20 are represented in this listing of what defiles a priest above and beyond what defiles a layman. All of the topics in this chapter are present in both chapters 19 and 20. In verse 10, the topic turns to a high priest. And once again, the same topics from before with only a slight change. The requirements for how the high priest is to handle his hair is for the first time followed by a command that the high priest is not to tear his garments. Once again, we find a command that is connected to mourning, as it was a common practice for a person to tear their clothing when mourning a loss. And in the trial of Yeshua, we read of a very important moment when the high priest invalidates himself and his office by doing this very thing. Matthew chapter twenty-five, sixty-four through sixty-five, and Yeshua said to him, "You have said it. Besides, I say to you, from now on, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of Power and coming on the clouds of the heaven." And the high priest tore his garment, saying, "He is blasphemed. Why do we need any more witnesses? See now, you have heard his blasphemy." Caiaphas tore his robes in a direct violation of the Holiness Code for the High Priest. He defiled himself. He blasphemed in his accusation of blasphemy. Now, Caiaphas already, he was not a valid High Priest, as he was not of the line of Aaron, and he had been appointed by Rome. But this action it goes even further towards revealing the fact that he should never have been a High Priest, And this act is just as much an indictment of the Sanhedrin who allowed Caiaphas to continue to serve even after this event. They allowed their hatred of Yeshua and the threat that He represented to their authority to override the Torah. In an attempt to uphold their traditional views of the Torah, they perverted what was actually written. Something that we should all guard against, as Yeshua did. So, moving on, while a priest could be defiled for a dead relative, the high priest was not to come close to a dead body for any reason. Not his sons, not his daughters, and not even his father or his mother. Now In the ancient Near East, this would have been seen as dishonoring your parents, something that was in opposition to the Ten Commandments. But in the case of holiness and death, a person cannot be dishonored any further than having their body placed in dirt to decompose. And we saw this back in chapter 10. Aaron was not allowed to mourn the loss of his sons when they died in the tabernacle. And it was this that led to Aaron then offering the chata'at sacrifice as if it were the olah sacrifice as we discussed at the time. Now for a wife, only a virgin will do for the high priest. Now from the previous list, widows are now part of the group who is off limits for the high priest. And the woman, she has to be a Hebrew from his own people no foreigners or no outsiders, even if they are a ger or a convert. Now the fact is that this requirement for the high priest to marry a pure maiden is something that is reflected on in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Messiah also did love the church and gave himself for it. So we're setting up Messiah to the church as a husband to a wife. In order to sanctify it and to cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, in order to present to himself a splendid church, not having spot or wrinkle or any of this sort, but that it might be holy and blameless, or second corinthians eleven two says "For I am jealous for you with a jealousy according to God, for I gave you in marriage to one husband to present you as an innocent virgin to Messiah." We are to be the bride for our high priests. So what does that mean when we consider the qualifications for the bride of the high priest that we read of here? Think on that. The next section, beginning in verse 16, is one that has caused no end of disapproval for many people over the years. No one who has a defect is to be allowed to serve before Hashem. Today, this would be called ableism treating a person who is handicapped as somehow less than the able-bodied. And this view is one that causes some modern readers to shake their head at the backwards nature of Scripture. And I suppose that this accusation is accurate to a degree. The issue is holding the idea of ableism as a legitimate gauge of right action. A person who is handicapped is not in a state to approach before a holy God. There's a defect And our world contains defects in all sorts of ways. It's on us to not present a holy God with things that are defective. Frankly, I would not even qualify to serve as a priest myself because of my bad eyesight and my less-than-stellar complexion. But that does not mean that a man with a defect is not holy. Because of his lineage and because of the duties and the rights and the inheritance that they were given to his ancestors— a man with a defect could still eat of the weekly showbread and the sacrifices, as was his right as a son of Aaron. So while a man with a defect could not serve in the tabernacle because they did not have that required level of holiness, they did still receive holiness by birth and by the rights that were due to them, by their lineage. So while this may seem like ableism, it is in fact a protection for a disabled person. And we saw already two men die because they approached God with a defective form of worship. To approach Him with a defective body would likely result in a similar outcome. I mean, just as we wouldn't put a paralytic around heavy machinery or working in a foundry because of the increased danger that their handicap would place them in, so too God does not want someone who is less than perfect coming before Him. But the disabled son of Aaron, they're not cast off. They're not removed from the community. They're not even removed from the tribe or the family. The disabled priest still partakes of the holy food without having to endanger himself by performing the holy duties. And as we have seen, Hashem's holiness is a dangerous thing. Transgressing it can lead to all sorts of negative consequences up to death. And add to this that Hashem's honor is paramount. His glory in bringing shame upon the proceedings at the tabernacle leads to defilement. We have to always remember that we are not reading of modern guilt and innocent society. We are reading of an ancient honor-shame culture. And in an honor-shame culture, all shame is to be avoided at all costs. In chapter 22, we see the text transition now to what I spoke of in the introduction. In just a few verses, we read of a sacrifice, uncleanness, and worship of the community all at once. And in verse 2, we read again that the priests can profane the holy name of Hashem if they don't treat the sacrifices in a proper manner. In verse 3, we read of the other three topics being introduced into the text all at once. one of your offspring, the community, who draws near to sacrifice, the holy action, while unclean, is to be removed from the community of Israel. Then in verse 3, the text goes back to the sons of Aaron. They too, they're forbidden from eating the holy things while in a state of uncleanness. The same uncleanness principles from earlier in the book that apply to everyone else, they also apply for the priests. Don't think that the holiness that's been granted protects you from uncleanness. And in this, I think we see that the status effects, they're on two completely different scales. Only when he's gone through the proper process of cleansing and is clean would he be able to interact with the holy things, including eating the food from the altar as was his right. This meant that the priest had to be extremely aware of their status. Much of their lives had to be planned around when they were going to eat of the sacrifices or potentially come in contact with a holy item. Even their marital relations had to be planned out around when they would be interacting with the things of God. Then the text covers those who are able to eat of the sacrifices through a connection to a priest. A hired servant or a gear who was with the priest, presumably residing in his house or working for him or eating with him, is not to eat of the offerings. But a slave that has become the property of the priest is able to eat of the sacrifices. Now, last week we saw a downside of being a slave for a woman. If her master chose to take her for himself, then he is allowed. This week, however, we see an upside for the slave if they are the slave of a priest. The holy food becomes their food as well. Being a slave of a person made you a member of their household as much as any of the family members. And all members of a priest's household were able to eat of the holy items everyone whether a descendant of Aaron or not and the daughter of a priest can eat while in her father's house but not when she leaves his house even if she has left and returned to her father's house she is able to eat of the sacrifices in verse 14 through 16 we read of the man who eats of a sacrifice who should not have and then he has to repay with a sacrifice and add 20% to what he ate and then we read that doing this thing is a defilement of the holy food, and so there is an admonition to work to prevent this from happening so that a person does not bear iniquity or guilt because they've eaten of the holy things unworthily. Once again, I'm reminded of something that Paul had to say about this ritual that's called the Lord's Supper or Communion. 1 Corinthians 11:26 26-30 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Master until he comes so that whoever should eat this bread or drink this cup of the master unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the master. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For the one who is eating and drinking unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the master. Because of this, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep." Paul makes the claim that there are many who are sick or who die because they partake of this practice in an unworthy manner. And because of their eating of this food, this, dare I say it, this holy food, there is infirmity and death introduced into the body of Messiah, because the one who was unworthy ate of the holy sacrifice." Now, in verse 17, the text shifts to the sacrifices themselves, and we discover that just as with the priests, the animals that are to be brought as sacrifices are also to be perfect in every way. With one exception. Leviticus 22, verse 23. As for a bull or a lamb that has any limb deformed or dwarfed, you do prepare it as a voluntary offering, but for a vow offering, it is not accepted. Now, this allowance is only for the voluntary offering subset of the shlamim or the peace offering. Why was a deformed animal allowed as a voluntary offering? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that the voluntary offerings were required for slaughtering meat in the wilderness. Remember, we read of that last week. If the person wanted to eat an animal, they had to offer the animal as a sacrifice while in the wilderness, and rather than expecting a completely pure animal for every meal with meat, an allowance was made for an animal with a birth defect or missing limb to be eaten by the people, and so it could be offered as a voluntary shlamim sacrifice. Other than that one exception, every animal that was offered on the altar was to be perfect. Now, there's a type of defective animal that's listed that is not a visible defect. In verse 25, an animal that's been raised by a stranger is not to be offered. and The animal is inherently defiled. Now, we need to be aware that the word used here is not ger, not a friendly stranger. It is instead a nahar. So the issue here is not a person who is simply a foreigner. Instead, the issue is a person who is a hostile foreigner. A ger is a foreigner who serves the same god of Israel, but a Nahar is a person who serves other gods and generally tends to be hostile towards Israel. An animal that comes from this source is one that is inherently defiled, and it cannot be offered as a sacrifice to God. And that's it for this week's text. Through all of this, we get an expanded view of holiness before the topic closes. Holiness is a topic that is truly important for us to understand, because we are told to conduct ourselves with all holiness in 1 Peter. And in that same book, we are told that we're being built up into a holy priesthood. And what was the role of the priests? Well, it's to represent God to men, to be the one that the people looked to when they wanted to interact with God. We are the representatives of God before men. We are made in His image when we accept our call to be men and we cease being beasts. We bear the name of our God and we reflect His image. Now just as the wife of a high priest must be undefiled, so too we must strive to remain undefiled. And just as only a priest without defect can serve, we should strive to be without defect we bring the sacrifices of our lips and we offer our own bodies as sacrifices every day or at least we should and so we as priests in training we must do all that we can to reflect holiness to all around us we as the betrothed the messiah we must remain pure we are his we are his people we are his representatives and living out holiness living out his character is what will best represent him to a defiled world. Uncleanness? Well, uncleanness teaches us about ourselves. But holiness? Holiness teaches us about him. So let us strive to be more like him in every way that we possibly can. And let's strive to seek life in all that we do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.